This is the number one showbiz podcast. It's Talk for Two. Here's your host, Matt Bailey. Thank you, Gary. Welcome officially, everybody, to our Mystery Week. Now, you know we were supposed to start this yesterday with Brian Ross, but unfortunately, even though he was coming through on the correct track on my board, the track was blank, so we had a technical issue. I'm going to re-record with him Thursday, so that means we will have a double episode Thursday with Brian Ross and our guest Cyril Wecht. We will have two on one. So, Today, I am excited to kick things off with Dr. Jeff Meldrum. Dr. Meldrum is a professor of anatomy and anthropology at Idaho State University. However, he is known to the world of Sasquatch believers as the foremost expert on Bigfoot prints. He has appeared on countless documentaries and TV series discussing why he believes the primate species thought to be a link between apes and humans, if it exists, is more than mythology. Dr. Meldrum is also an author of several books on the subject, some of which I have linked below to their Amazon page in the description on talkfortwo.com. But you know me, I never just want to delve into the expert's subject matter. I love getting to know the person what fascinates them, and what drives their beliefs. I see these folks on TV, and I wonder, how did they become believers in this particular mystery of the universe? That's the focus of our conversation with Dr. Meldrum. Plus, he and I talk about the standing of the theory of Bigfoot's existence within the mainstream scientific community. Here now to tell us if he's ever seen a Squatch, our interview with anthropologist, Dr. Jeff Meldrum. Dr. Jeff Meldrum, welcome to the show. How are you, sir? I'm fine. Thank you, all considered. Well, you're staying in. You're back at uh, your university. What, what's your, what are you doing right now? Where are you? Where are you calling from? Well, I'm, I'm calling from my office. I'm, yes, back in the fall semester, uh, mm-hmm. as it is. We obviously are uh, uh, working under very different conditions with the covid uh, pandemic, but um, nevertheless, I think we're successfully having providing great experiences for our students, and and we're moving ahead in the various programs that I teach in, and and uh, working on projects, and uh, you know, keeping our distance, wearing masks, doing all the all the appropriate, uh, for taking all the appropriate precautions. But it's it's uh, it's going ahead. In fact, we've learned some new things. <laughs> it was interesting. We. <laughs> Uh, some of the ways in which we uh, reduce the density of students actually has certain benefits, and uh, especially in some of the laboratory experiences that I that I um, conduct, um, we're we're thinking, hmm, maybe we should keep doing this even when COVID does blow over, if if and when it does. <laughs> That's great. What do you teach? I for I what what I, what do you teach yeah. at school? Um, I teach in the health professions programs. I'm an anatomist, mm-hmm. and so we teach graduate-level human gross anatomy. So it's a full-body dissection laboratory-based course that mm-hmm. provides sort of the anatomical foundation for these health professionals, occupational therapy, physical therapy. Um, I work with radiographic science students. We do some workshops for some of our residents here in the, in the uh, medical programs, et cetera. So, and then every once in a while, I get a dabble in some of the basic sciences, like I teach a course in evolution or comparative anatomy or 
primatology every once in a while as well. And so that uh, changes. Does the university let you let you stick in some Sasquatch uh, stuff in those lessons? Oh sure, yeah. I mean, Good. we have academic freedom. Uh, mm-hmm. We not we're not. Uh, there's not somebody from the party sitting on the back row, you know, taking <laughs> notes on what you say or don't say. But um, but no, I'm I'm obviously very responsible and very um, professional in the way I sure. uh, share this topic with the uh, with the students. It's a great hook. I mean, oh, yeah. it it uh, it catches the students' attentions from all ages. I mean, I've been invited. When my my little granddaughter was in kindergarten, she of course talked up what her grandpa da- did, and and uh, so the next thing I knew, I was giving a very hands-on presentation with lots of skulls and models of foot skeletons and footprints and casts, and mm-hmm. to a, a room full of wrapped uh, six-year-olds, <laughs> five-year-olds, <laughs> and so uh, it was great. I mean, they had great questions. They were really thinking. I mean, it's always. Uh, so when I when I teach a say a course in in um, primate uh, survey of living primates, I always include a unit on the potential for relic hominoids, as uh, you know other potential representatives of the order. Or when we're doing uh, uh, human evolution, we we incorporate the possibility that perhaps some of these branches on our bushy family tree didn't actually go extinct and are still persisting in remote corners of the globe or in remote environments and and uh, and you know how would that fit is there a is there a context that can accommodate the existence i mean anyone today who says oh it's just impossible it couldn't possibly exist doesn't know what they're talking about plain and simple now they might say oh it's so unlikely that something like that could exist today that's a different argument altogether the possibility denial is out the window. It's entirely out the window. Mm-hmm. But then, then you're left with the questions. You need to, to grapple with the questions. Well, where is the body? Why haven't we found one? You know, where, where's the fossil record in this continent? And so forth and so forth. And those things, I think, even those things can be rationally discussed and the uh, likelihoods weighed, even in the absence of conclusive evidence. But, boy, there's a mm-hmm. lot of suggestive evidence that, that really uh, keeps the flame fanned and uh and you know the the inquiry burning yeah so to speak. i love i love this topic and you kind of you kind of introduced how we're going to approach this but before we get into the questions i mean i grew up watching bigfoot documentaries i've, I've known of your work for many years uh it's not a topic i get to explore often on this show but i'm trying to do more human interest stuff like this so we're going to get into it but i like to learn a little bit about my guests who come on to talk about topics like this how did you personally, Dr. Meldrum, become interested in the possibility that this missing link might exist? Was it a, a boyhood fascination that grew scientific, or has it always been a scientific question for you? Um, no, no. It. Uh, I mean, I think that your first characterization was actually kind of spot on. I, I mean, as a, as a youngster, uh, as so many youngsters, I was fascinated by uh, prehistoric creatures, dinosaurs, and Ice Age megafauna and, and uh, you know, the prospect of primitive men eking out a living in, in uh, extreme environments and so forth. I was also fascinated by mysteries. I, you know, the, the, uh, the romance of getting in a plane and flying towards the North Pole and ending up inside a hollow earth 
was one that fascinated <laughs> me as a youngster, you know, until I came to understand the physics involved a bit better. And, um, and so that, uh, you know, that spark was there when I saw the Patterson Gimlin film as, as, uh, as I've said, uh, told the story off. And I, you know, I was a youngster, uh, Roger had just uh, come through Spokane. It was one of the first, if not the first, um, public showings of the of the film at the Spokane Coliseum there in Washington State. And I was uh, I was in fifth grade, so about eleven years old, ten or eleven years old. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, it that you know that what what walked across that silver screen just seemed to embody all of these fascinations and interests that I had. And so, wow, it was, you know, it was just captivating to me. And uh, as I, as I often did, my brother and I, you know, when we got into a hobby, we really got into a hobby. And and so I had, you know, started collecting what few books were out then. I mean, one of the first books I ever got as a Christmas present, a book instead of a toy, was Ivan Sanderson's A Bomb Snowman Legend Come to Life. And I devoured that repeatedly. And I mean, that's how I learned world geography, uh, you know, was studying the maps and le- le- reading his descriptions of the habitat and the distribution and so forth. And, um, I, you know, I started collecting newspaper clippings. And this was back in the day before before uh, copy machines were readily available and so forth. There might be a copy machine at your office, but it was this was still carbon copies, you know, is why, how you made a copy. But uh, I would sit there at my typewriter, you know, I'd go to the library and check out books. And, and uh, you know, I could only keep the book for so long. So I'd sit there at my typewriter, my mom's typewriter, and transcribe sections of these books that talked about the abominable snowman or about Bigfoot. And, uh, or I would uh, tape record, I would actually dictate them. Or, or I would take a tape recorder with us that talked my folks into taking us to uh, one of the drive-in movie theaters when a Bigfoot movie was playing, and I'd record the soundtrack and put that on at night and listen to it, you know, fall asleep, listening to the legend of Boggy Creek, and he always follows the creek, you know. <laughs> that just really was uh, was uh, imprinted on my brain at that age. And so, you know, th- that interest uh, waxed and waned and kind of became latent as other things took uh, priority. But then um, I guess all that... Uh, all those interests that aligned with this topic uh, kind of directed my my uh, my pursuits of education, and, and and as various opportunities came, things crystallized and came into focus. And before I knew it, I was pursuing a doctorate in uh, anatomical sciences with an emphasis in physical anthropology and looking at hominin bipedalism specifically. And and uh, then, I mean, that just that was unwittingly preparing the ground, so to speak, for the spring planting, because then suddenly, mm-hmm. boom, I was brought up face-to-face through just kind of serendipitous circumstances with these, this long, long line of tracks in southeastern Washington and, uh, and a visit to Grover's lab and a couple of other things that all kind of converged, and suddenly here here I was was presented with this opportunity to pursue this in a way that, uh, you know, uh, really hadn't been um, uh, available, I guess, you mm-hmm. know, the, yeah. the stars really kind of aligned in, in many ways. I mean, Grover Krantz had done a lot. He had, 
you know, standing on his shoulders really gave me a jump start down the path of uh, many of these thoughts and, and investigations. But, uh, but my particular training was even more apt for the interpretation of the analysis of what is by far the most prevalent and prolific body of data, which are the footprint, right. uh, the footprints and footprint casts documenting those. So I think I've really, I've taken that much further. I mean, it, I, I find it impressive and interesting that those academics who have most, uh, been most uh, I- impacted, have been most um, impressed by the possibility of the, of the existence of Sasquatch, like John Napier and Grover Krantz and Ivan Sanderson, have been very focused on or have included in their arguments the, the footprint evidence. Um, I mean, Napier in his book, when he when he tips his hat and acknowledges that he does think that Sasquatch exists, and it's and he 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 uh, you know gives away what he thinks uh, compelled him, what what it was persuasive. It was the footprints. He basically says something is out there leaving these footprints, and yeah. he was convinced that that some of them were the real deal. He thought there was. Uh, a bit of hoaxing going on and and you know anybody worth their salt can recognize that with, with from a close examination but it's not as pervasive as as the uninformed might have you believe right it's uh, much more get... common misidentifications than yeah. outright hoaxes that's where we get into some of what i like to call the bigfoot logical fallacies right mm-hmm. so okay where this is my theory you can tell me if i'm right or wrong people want to say oh we have more cameras now so why isn't why isn't bigfoot why isn't there conclusive evidence of a bigfoot on camera why does everything look like it's shot on a potato as they say you know or why don't we have a carcass why don't we have a body and i don't necessarily think that just because technology is more prevalent means that sasquatch is is going to be that much easier to locate and to find that's right. Yeah, we have more cameras, but we don't have better photographers. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, plus, plus, and, and even giving credit where credit's due, the circumstances that are typically described uh, accompanying uh, and such an encounter uh, are such that it's very unlikely that someone's going to have the composure, the wherewithal, to actually get a good picture. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, even these people who just reflexively whip up their phones and start videotaping or, or recording rather an antiquated term there, but yeah. recording, um, you know, it, uh, if you were going to bump into, uh, an eight foot, eight and a half foot tall, thousand pound bipedal primate, uh, striding across the road, uh, perhaps at night or perhaps, you know, under, under not the best of, of, uh, uh, viewing conditions, you know, the just the split second of that experience oftentimes doesn't um, permit someone to quickly get their camera out of their pocket and turn it on. And uh, I mean, not everyone is that adept. I'm kind of still kind of new to a smartphone, and it takes a few buttons. <laughs> I don't yeah. I don't know all the shortcuts. But anyway, and then you know, you ask about the bodies and. And um, one of the things I think, uh, you know, one of the logical uh, links in that chain of argument is 
the rarity of these creatures. I've talked about this at some length in public, and I think they're much rarer than most people who uh, allow for the possible existence, existence of such a creature are willing to acknowledge. I mean, you get people, they're describing a, uh, you know, a, uh, a, a booming population with little communities of Sasquatch here and there. And such uh, density would would leave more sign. We'd find them. We'd be bumping into them more often. The fact mm-hmm. that we have so few encounters reported and so few footprints spanning the, the decades um, and the repeat appearance of recognizable individual of that footprint record we have, given that there's so few, when footprints are found, there are very few individuals in a given region. Hmm. And that's been, that's been demonstrated quite clearly by, you know, that was one of the first questions I asked. See, that hadn't, some people, I think, had drawn attention to a couple of examples. But, you know, my question was, if these creatures exist, if we allow that they exist, uh, they must be very rare. And uh, with that premise, if footprints are found in a given geographical region, uh, repeatedly over a period of time, sometimes it's decades even, I mean, given their lifespan, um, then the mm-hmm. odds are that you're going to see the footprints of one of those very few individuals more than once. Yeah. And so I started I started looking for examples of that because one of the things I was kind of concerned about is that having grown up and, you know, kind of knew, knowing some of the lore and some of the literature surrounding these these reports and so on, uh, there seemed to be an awful lot of variation in the in the tracks, and that that's just not. I mean, you can you can have a certain amount of variation in a in a rare uh, low density population of a species, but but uh, I mean, there's got to be some consistency, and so I started looking for um, the repeat appearance and, and for more of that consistency, and they both emerged. I mean, we, it wasn't hard to find. Uh, such examples, many that had been overlooked, because people didn't understand how a footprint can vary in appearance mm-hmm. from from uh, step to step, even in a given location, let alone uh, in very different substrates yeah. uh, separated by space and time. And uh, so that uh, that became evident quickly. And then with a larger sample and more uh, credible, uh, you know, uh, def- I, more definitive in my mind, examples, and a, a model of the foot, a distinctive model that differentiates it from human tracks, uh, began to take shape as well. And, and the foot is quite different. It's not just a, an enlargement of a human foot. It is the foot of a eight and a half foot tall, thousand pound bipedal ape, you know, like we were saying. And and it's mm-hmm. it's adapted accordingly. Yeah. I the reason I reached out to you after hearing you, I don't know what the documentary was, talk about, you know, you can fake a, a wooden sculpt of a foot, but there are muscle ridges, there are muscle movement in the in the stride, in those prints, that nobody could really fake without any kind of advance advanced equipment. Does that prove conclusively in your mind that Sasquatch exists, the complexity of these prints? Well, sure. That is that is is extremely uh, compelling. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, if, if not conclusive. I mean, I, 
you know, I, I have to, everything has to kind of be qualified by the fact that we don't have a body. We haven't right. proven the existence. And so, and so it remains tentative, but the probability, the confidence in that probability can be very high based on the evidence and the analysis of the evidence. But, but absolutely. I mean, if you have a carved wooden foot, just recently Cliff Berrickman received yep. um, Rant Mullen's carved wooden feet, which is a great historical piece. They are the most um, uh, simplistic, uh, <laughs> you know, kind of amateurish interpretations of a, of a foot that you could uh, imagine. And, and no one with any uh, experience of wildlife sign would ever have uh, mistaken something resulting from those carved blocks uh, as as the legitimate evidence of a upright bipedal hominoid. And so, um, you know, as opposed to that static, rigid prosthetic, as you point out, the foot is composed of, of quite a number of individual bones that are jointed. And that yeah. foot is able to mold itself uh, based on muscle action and based on conformity to a very irregular substrate. So supination and pronation and inversion and eversion, all these different movements that can occur. Um, and so when you see examples, when you have more than just an isolated footprint, so you have, for, for, like recently someone just uh, shared with me a very impressive footprint that was uh, cast up or uh, photographed rather presumably up in uh, the uh, state of Wyoming and it uh, it actually bears a striking resemblance to some of the existing footprints and so uh, from from you know 50 years ago but whether that similarity is just the common uh, the common uh, uh, what's the I keep falling back to the German Bauplan uh, body plan or architecture, uh, the architecture of the Sasquatch foot, or whether it's uh, something else remains to be seen. But when you have just one isolated foot, it's always more challenging. One footprint, that is. If I had a yeah. foot, we'd be done. We'd be having a different conversation. <laughs> but yeah. a footprint. But when you have, and this is part of the thing that's so fascinating about these multiple uh, appearances, these repeat appearances of recognizable individuals, because you have a much greater chance under the varied conditions of these different instances of seeing the responsiveness of the foot to those differing conditions. So you see the movements, the the uh, you know the the closed chain linkages between the parts of the foot, but yet they're very malleable in response to. The, uh, the substrate, and especially in the Sasquatch foot. You know, our foot, Westerners who, who live their lives with their feet pretty much confined to shoe wear, the, that malleability, that, uh, that flexibility of the foot is greatly reduced. And so everything's kind of compressed and compacted, whereas you see someone that has gone barefoot much of their life and they have a much healthier foot and a more natural splay and spread of the metatarsals and the digits and uh, a much greater uh, flexibility of the foot um, right. while still having a very healthy arch. Yeah. That was one of the, one of the big surprises of the, of the physical anthropologist at the turn of the century that went out the previous century that went out and, uh, you know, to document these 
habitually unshod native populations. They thought, you know, these poor natives who didn't have the benefit of boots would have these these uh, decrepit, diseased feet with fallen arches and all. And they were kind of taken aback, you know, in their Victorian <laughs> elitism that, that uh, in fact, these these natives had a remarkably healthy feet with high arches and, and uh, you know, very, uh, very nimble uh, blade toes and so forth. And, uh, and it was, sure. uh, it was the poor European that was suffering from bunions <laughs> and corns and, and uh, arthritis in the toes and whatnot and, and uh, weak arches. I want to ask, because you talk so scientifically about this, and this is so fascinating. My concern is, as somebody who believes in Sasquatch, who believes that uh, it's, we just haven't found the conclusive proof yet, uh, I want to focus on a kind of a meta-negative here, and that is how science treats this research. And I've never understood in all the documentaries that I've watched about that, that the study of Bigfoot is a crypto-science, why mainstream science has not taken seriously the question of, is a mis... Because we know about Gigantopithecus. We know about all these other links going back to the caveman times. Why has science not taken seriously the, the study of whether or not a missing link between human and ape could still be roaming the earth? That seems like a very valid question to me that has almost been soiled by the media perception that this is cryptozoology, that this is right. some folklorish horror character as opposed right. to a legitimate scientific question. Right. No, you're right. And I've, I've wondered that for a long time, too. So, I mean, still, the reactions sometimes surprise me, and I think that they're, some reactions are just entirely unscientific, and so they're not rational. But, mm -hmm. uh, but what I, the conclusion that I have come to is when you consider excuse me, when you consider the question of Sasquatch, its history against the historical backdrop of, of prevailing attitudes in science and particularly in anthropology at that time, then it starts to make a little more sense. I mean, we're kind of on the heels of, uh, it, it came on the heels rather of the fascination, the public fascination with the prospect of the Yeti which there were some scientists who took a, a, a very pointed interest in that, but they kept it very close to their vest. There was kind of a, a uh, you know, a, a secret society of, of <laughs> Yeti enthusiasts amongst some scientific circles. And uh, they, they felt it would, that there, uh, because of kind of the sensation that surrounded, it, not unlike what we experience, uh, would have would taint their reputations and their credibility, and so they kept it kept aloof from it. That sort of that attitude sort of spilled over, I think, as as the interest was redirected now to the question of a North American abominable snowman, you know, and even Roger Patterson's little book, "Do Abominable Snowmen of America Really Exist?" It was it was uh, cast or or. or um, uh, uh, forced into that same mold. And at that time, uh, in the 60s, the uh, anthropological community was really, um, uh, there was a raging debate about the pattern and process of human evolution. And there were, there were agendas. There were people who thought that, 
that we were um, uh, that we were just part of a very long existing species that has changed through time, but essentially there was no speciation. We were one single lineage, and uh, and then some bolstered that idea with the notion that borrowed from ecology, the niche concept that no two species can occupy the same niche. Uh, each one will be, you know, uh, each one would, would would compete with the other, and one would drive the other to extinction, or result in uh, um, character displacement or niche partitioning or something that would make it possible for them to uh, to uh, both make a living there. But but that was used to reinforce this notion of the single species hypothesis, which suggested that. The hominin species was so unique that it was an exclusive niche, you know, a, a closed club, only one member. There could be only one. And um, and so when Roger Patterson brings this film that depicts a bipedal hominin of some kind or hominoid that uh, was a non-human species that seem to be very parallel in many adaptations with us, at least in its in its uh, posture and gait and so forth, um, they couldn't even accommodate the existence of such a thing based on right. the on their indoctrination with this paradigm. And so it had to be fake, see? And so it was only much later that the um, that notion of, of a single species hypothesis started to break down. First, there were robust and gracile Australopithecines. They weren't male and female of a single species, but they were distinct. And then, um, you know, they kicked the can down the road and said, well, that, you know, the Australopithecines, they're barely bipedal chimpanzees. I mean, we can't apply this exclusive club credential to, uh, to them. We have, once the homo emerges... Once mm-hmm. the genus Homo's on the scene, then it's an exclusive club. Well, no sooner had that caveat been been uh, you know canonized than uh, Richard Leakey describes in East Africa living contemporaneous in the same horizon, same sediments, Homo erectus or Homo ergaster now, um, Homo ergaster, Homo habilis, Homo rudolfensis, and Paranthropus boisei at least four species coexisting simultaneously. Well, now the argument gets kicked down even further into (laughs) Homo sapiens proper. And well, you know, now we're the only ones. I mean, obviously our technology and culture and intelligence won out, and we are the sole survivors of that diverse radiation. Well, that's being challenged right and left as we keep finding branches of this bushy tree that have persisted much more recently than ever thought possible. I mean, what really drove this home was the discovery of Homo floresiensis, the hobbit. I mean, yeah. for a while, it was thought to be only between thirteen and 18,000. That's been pushed back a little further to about 50,000. But in those, in those 50,000 years, uh, you know, give or take, we've got Homo erectus, we've got Homo heidelbergensis, we've got Homo neanderthalensis, we have um, Homo floresiensis. We've got a half a dozen different species of hominin that persisted, uh, that they have to acknowledge, 
yeah. uh, persisted at least until about 20, 20 to 30,000 years ago or slightly more. But still, mm-hmm. I mean, still just a snap of the fingers in geologic time. And so why, why with the, all the evidence to suggest the inertia of these trajectories of these lineages, why would we assume that in the face, especially in the face of all the evidence that keeps coming forward, that keeps suggesting there could be something else. See, that's what I mean about the possibility that such things exist is, is, has been addressed. It's very possible. In fact, it's very likely. Now, the question is how likely, you know, is uh, when, when they describe the Hobbit and, and they kind of sheepishly acknowledge that the local people had already been telling them stories about little hairy people live up in the mountains. Yeah. So what is the likelihood you know, they're even willing to acknowledge that they could have existed into historic times, and those early Dutch settlers in their journals actually talked about encountering these little hairy people. Yeah. Well, so, why, why are you, you know, why draw the line there? Why is the testimony of a Dutch settler any better, better than the testimony of a professional photographer who's seen uh, an orang pendek several times? Yeah. You know. So that all <laughs> begs the question: What has to happen now? I mean. I blame the media a little bit for the idea that 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 Bigfoot is just some mythical creature and isn't scientifically viable, even though folks like you who are legitimate scientists go on media. It's very important. But you, I, I have an issue with uh, a gentleman whose whose show you mentioned. Uh, you mentioned a gentleman. I think they're great people. But I think the way that show was edited together, you're sitting on the edge of your seat thinking they're going to find it. And obviously they don't. So yeah. what has to happen now, now that we have technology, now that we have things that can penetrate deep into the woods, do we yeah. have to go? Do we have to helicopter and parachute in to a part of the world, to a part of the country with unexplored woods? How can we get the definitive proof? What has to yeah. happen? Well, I, you know, I've been uh, not, not helicoptering in. You're, you say you're yeah. able to get to some of those places on on foot or by vehicle, but... Uh, yeah. Into, even into the wilderness areas, and I've been doing that uh, a lot mm-hmm. over the years. Have you <clears> had what, a sighting? What you, what you, have you? I have not had a visual sign. I may have caught a glimpse of something. Um, <coughs> pardon me, not too long sure. ago, but uh, I've, I've found footprints in the field several times I've, that I'm quite confident about. I've heard vocalizations that were very possibly uh, something uh, a Sasquatch. I mean, but uh, obviously it was something. Mm-hmm. But um, but no, I haven't had that uh, eye-to-eye contact really to to confirm that in in my own mind. But but the problem is, I mean, and this is the thing that uh, you know I, I emphasized when I suggested that these were very rare. I've been mm-hmm. working with someone in the field, you know, and one time this person is the type of guy that he when he gets organized and he's got the resources and the personnel and. Um, uh, the wherewithal, you've got the plan, you've done your homework, then you, you get it done. You get this project done. It's the way he is, was professionally in business. And so when he turns his attention to this, um, you know, lifelong interest in Sasquatch, he takes that same approach. So I remember one time we were, we were going to be driving up to a region that, that he had uh, asked me to select. So we, we were going to explore some area here in, actually here in Idaho, and that I'd long wanted to get into. Some of these wilderness areas i mean idaho boasts more wilderness area than any of the other lower 48 so um 
we were going back to a really great place. Uh, the, unfortunately, the fires uh, mm-hmm. that year, Idaho was the where all the fires were happening. It seemed, and but anyway, to make a long story short, he turns to me at one point as we're driving up from after he picked me up here in Pocatello. So, Jeff, what are our chances? <laughs> you know, are we going to get this done <laughs> in this five-day uh, exploratory foray into the wilderness? And I said, you know, I mean, I chuckled, and I says, you know, we had all the belt all, uh, that were available at that time. I mean, short of maybe a blimp, and we investigated that, <laughs> and we just we just ran into roadblock after roadblock. Oh, but, wow. But we, awesome. um, yeah, it would have been really cool if it had worked out the way we'd hoped, but we, we, uh, we had a couple of engineers who couldn't speak the same language, and so, I mean, figuratively, and so it, it never... It never came together as we hoped. But short of that, we had a lot of bells and whistles. You know, the standard Bigfoot equipment. We had the FLIR and the night vision and the camera traps and the radios and, the, you know, this, that, and the other, the spotting scopes and binoculars, all, all the optics and the body cameras. And, and, uh, and I said, well, even with all that stuff, there's only so much ground we can cover in five days. And basically, we're, we're going to be restricted to one part of one drainage system that we're going to explore and see the possibilities for now if there's a sasquatch if there is one sasquatch and there's probably not more than one it that happens to be in that drainage during these five days then we've got a chance of of an encounter but if it's just over the ridge in the next drainage (laughs) we're out of luck we're sol you know yeah and so um that's kind of what people forget, you know, I, I, I have to say, and I, and I say this uh, gently and uh, kindly, but the, the weekend warriors who report consistent weekend encounters with a Sasquatch, you know, when you press them on the matter, what are they actually experiencing? Well, you know, there's a bump in the night, there's a, there's a sound, or it's not even a sound, it's a feeling that they mm-hmm. get, that they're around. You know, in other words, there's absolutely no substantive evidence produced by their, quote, Bigfoot activity that they're experiencing on a weekly basis. I mean, I've spent months, months and months and months at a time even uh, in the field and have not uh, had better luck than finding a few tracks and and a few strands sure. of potential hair and such. And so... Um, I have to wonder, you know, I mean, it's not just jealousy and it's not, it's not <laughs> yeah. narrow mindedness to the possibilities, but, but yeah. yeah, it's curiosity. How is it that you're having all this, you know, this Midas touch when it comes to finding evidence and well, and if, when I yeah. scrutinize it, there's, it's fool's gold, not real gold. <laughs> yeah. Cause if you're not a nature person, you don't know what, what a sound, if you're not familiar with actual noises that animals make and i'm not i'm not a hunter i'm not a woods person whatsoever i'm yeah. sure i'd think there were creepy creepy crawlies and sasquatches and things that no it's just a deer you know so right. it's it's that confirmation bias that is heightened when you're freaked out in the middle of the woods i i totally understand that but well uh, and the, and the thing that confirms that for me too is that uh you know uh, is, is footprints the example mm-hmm. of footprints because there if someone yeah. has claimed to have have seen a footprint and has documented it, they can then show me the pictures or show me the cast and mm-hmm. I can evaluate it. And my experience has been that a very large number of quote 
track reports are mm-hmm. not footprints of Sasquatch. Right. And so if if that percentage is so disappointingly low, not non-existent, there is evidence. I mean, there's good evidence. But if it's but if there are that many people misinterpreting, misidentifying a physical object, or at least I mean a trace of a physical object in the ground, then how reliable is their interpretation of a vocalization, or sure. you know, or a quote a tree knock, or whatever else? You know, same with hair. Yeah. You know, all these reports of Bigfoot hair, and yet when uh, literally. Nine out of ten of the hairs that are submitted to me, I can readily uh, demonstrate with a, you know with a photographic comparison that it's not. It's it's a deer or it's a you know coyote or it's a whatever. Mm-hmm. And um, and so, but there are those. There's a small sample of hair that is clearly primate, and it's distinct and it can't be attributed to any other common you know fur-bearing mammal out there in the woods. And so. Um, but there's an awful lot of mistaken uh, uh, attribution of hair to Sasquatch. Yeah. My last question for you isn't about hair or or footprints, and, and it's about film, and it's about the Patterson-Gimlin film. And I'm going to ask this in the way that we've been talking. I'm not going to try to hold you to an absolute. But sure. on the probability scale, as somebody who studies anatomy, who's probably mm-hmm. watched that over and over again, with all the reflexes and the micro expressions and things, where are you on the probability scale that that is an authentic Sasquatch versus a really, really good hoax? 99.99. And I'm not sure what you could do to, to uh, uh, reclaim that or, or to uh, validate that uh, one hundredth of one percent uh, mm-hmm. doubt in my mind. I mean, I don't know what you could show me that say, oh, well, yeah, I see that now. You, I see why it's not true. In other words, I'm, I'm as convinced as I can be. I've looked at it from so many uh, um, perspectives and so thoroughly. And from my perspective, as a, as a, like you said, as an anatomist, as a student of human and primate locomotion, as, a, as an expert in footprint uh, morphology and, and uh, functional morphology and so on, um, uh, that I'm short of having stood there on the sandbar with Roger and Bob, I'm as confident as I can be. So yeah, it's, um, it's, it's an amazing piece of footage. And, and again, uh, it's all the more amazing, just as the, I said, the question of the science's reaction makes more sense when considered against the backdrop of the history of ideas. Um, it's the same with the Patterson-Gimlin film. The film actually anticipates by decades what is now considered common knowledge about early hominin evolution based on our extremely expanded fossil record since this, you know, from the 70s forward. It just took off like a mushroom and continues, you know, at a, at a, mar- a remarkable pace that's only really only slowed or uh, hindered by limits on personnel and funding. Um, they just keep yeah. finding remarkable discoveries. And But uh, when you look at the Patterson-Gimlin film, see again, as I said, when Roger showed that film, it was thought that uh, 
that uh, it couldn't exist because there could not be other non-human bipeds out there. And that has fallen by the wayside. Well, then, even, but even then, see, they looked at that and they thought, well, this is just an un... Even, even if such a thing might exist, this is what uh, John Napier said. John Napier, who was amongst those who viewed the film at the Smithsonian, one of its first U.S. showings in, to the uh, scientists, he was probably the more open-minded of the group and was imp- obviously impressed because five years later he published um, a remarkable book about Sasquatch and Yeti. And, uh, you know, in his, in his retirement, when he felt free to, to speak openly about such a controversial topic, and still people thought he, he was loony, that he'd gone off the deep end, you know, and had uh, become old and senile and wrote this crazy book. But it's a really remarkable book. But when he talked about the, the Patterson-Gimlin film, he, he came down on the still, remained on the negative side, as, as his other cohorts did on the committee that watched it. Um, but he said, I really can't put my finger on why I can't accept it, except to point out that when you look at, at this creature walk across the sandbar from the waist up, she looks like an ape, but from the waist down, she looks like a human. He said, it's almost inconceivable that such a weird combination of traits would exist in nature. So it has to be a hoax. Well, isn't it interesting that just mm. a few short years later, uh, Don Johansson announces the discovery of Lucy, Australopithecus afarensis, and to yep. much fanfare and, and pomp and circumstance. And it was it was a, a fascinating discovery that provided a much better insight into the pelvis and the lower extremity of these early hominins with their uh, inwardly directed knees, their valgus knee, and and a broad uh, bowl-shaped pelvis and and etc and feet with uh, less divergent if not non-divergent big toes and so what did the press how did the press characterize this uh, or in the in the words the you know the informal description from the scientists from the waist up she looks like a chimpanzee from the waist down she looks like a human well wait a minute <laughs> yeah that was the very description of of patty <laughs> that uh, disqualified her as a legitimate entity. And yet, here in Lucy, now it's like, isn't it interesting how hominin evolution has proceeded in this unexpected combination of traits? That's interesting, because <laughs> that, that's so cool, because it's almost like Patty and the film are the scientific hypothesis, and throughout exactly. the years, it's being proven true. This stuff exactly. is just so interesting. Dr. Jeff Meldrum, this was a pleasure. Please come back. This stuff is so fascinating to me. I really, really appreciate your time. And there's so much more. And I know, I know in our lifetime, I think we're going to have the answers. I really do. It sounds like we're getting close. Well, I hope so, because my lifetime is is, uh, shrinking away. (laughs) Oh, stop it. Professor Meldrum, thank you so very much. There's a lot more to discuss. This topic is endlessly fascinating to me, and I hope to have you back very, very soon. Next up, we have an extra-long episode with ufologist Richard Dolan. If you're listening to this on January 12th, that's tomorrow. If you're listening any time after, just keep clicking through to listen for more. That's it for us today. Remember, you can always check out talkfor2.com for the latest episodes. Also, subscribe to us in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and wherever 
you get your podcasts. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Talk for Two and Instagram at Talk for Two Pod and TikTok. I always forget to promote this at Talk for Two. Reach out to me directly at Talk for Two Cast at gmail.com. That's T A L K F O R T W O C A S T at gmail.com. Signing off, I'm Matt Bailey, reminding everyone out there to keep talking for two. You can hear more show business interviews with the stars at talkfor2.com. This is the number one showbiz podcast. It's Talk for Two. Here's your host, Matt Bailey. Thank you, Gary. Welcome officially, everybody, to our Mystery Week. Now, you know we were supposed to start this yesterday with Brian Ross, but unfortunately, even though he was coming through on the correct track on my board, the track was blank, so we had a technical issue. I'm going to re-record with him Thursday, so that means we will have a double episode Thursday with Brian Ross and our guest Cyril Wecht. We will have two on one. So... Today, I am excited to kick things off with Dr. Jeff Meldrum. Dr. Meldrum is a professor of anatomy and anthropology at Idaho State University. However, he is known to the world of Sasquatch believers as the foremost expert on Bigfoot prints. He has appeared on countless documentaries and TV series discussing why he believes the primate species thought to be a link between apes and humans, if it exists, is more than mythology. Dr. Meldrum is also an author of several books on the subject, some of which I have linked below to their Amazon page in the description on talkfor2.com. But you know me, I never just want to delve into the expert's subject matter. I love getting to know the person what fascinates them, and what drives their beliefs. I see these folks on TV, and I wonder, how did they become believers in this particular mystery of the universe? That's the focus of our conversation with Dr. Meldrum. Plus, he and I talk about the standing of the theory of Bigfoot's existence within the mainstream scientific community. Here now to tell us if he's ever seen a Squatch, our interview with anthropologist, Dr. Jeff Meldrum. Dr. Jeff Meldrum, welcome to the show. How are you, sir? I'm fine. Thank you, all considered. Well, you staying in? You back at uh, your university? What, what's your, what are you doing right now? Where are you? Where are you calling from? Well, I'm, I'm calling from my office. I'm, yes, back in the fall semester, uh, mm-hmm. as it is. We obviously are uh, uh, working under very different conditions with the covid uh, pandemic, but um, nevertheless, I think we're successfully having providing great experiences for our students, and and we're moving ahead in the various programs that I teach in, and and uh, working on projects, and uh, you know, keeping our distance, wearing masks, doing all the all the appropriate, uh, taking all the appropriate precautions. But it's it's uh, it's going ahead. In fact, we've learned some new things. <laughs> it was interesting. We. Uh, some of the ways in which we uh, reduce the density of students actually has certain benefits, and uh, especially in some of the laboratory experiences that I that I um, conduct, um, 
we're we're thinking, hmm, maybe we should keep doing this even when COVID does blow over, if if and when it does. <laughs> That's great. What do you teach? I for I what what I, what do you teach yeah. at school? Um, I teach in the health professions programs. I'm an anatomist, mm-hmm. and so we teach graduate level human gross anatomy. So it's a full body dissection laboratory based course that mm-hmm. provides sort of the anatomical foundation for these health professionals, occupational therapy, physical therapy. Um, I work with radiographic science students. We do some workshops for some of our residents here in the in the uh, medical programs, etc. So, and then every once in a while, I get a dabble in some of the basic sciences, like I teach a course in evolution or comparative anatomy or primatology every once in a while as well. And so that uh, changes. Does the university let you? Let you stick in some Sasquatch uh, stuff in those lessons? Oh, sure. Yeah, I mean, Good. we have academic freedom. Uh, mm-hmm. We're not, we're not, uh, there's not somebody from the party sitting on the back row, you know, taking <laughs> notes on what you say or don't say. But, um, but no, I'm, I'm obviously very responsible and very um, professional in the way I sure. uh, share this topic with the, with the students. It's a great hook. I mean, oh, yeah. it it uh, it catches the students' attentions from all ages. I mean, I've been invited when my my little granddaughter was in kindergarten. She of course talked up what her grandpa da- did, and and uh, so next thing I knew, I was giving a very hands-on presentation with lots of skulls and models of foot skeletons and footprints and casts, and mm-hmm. to a, a room full of wrapped. Uh, six-year-olds, <laughs> five-year-olds, <laughs> and so uh, it was great. I mean, they had great questions. They were really thinking. I mean, it's always uh, so when I when I teach a say a course in in um, primate uh, survey of living primates, I always include a unit on the potential for relic hominoids as uh, you know other potential representatives of the order. Or when we're doing uh, uh, human evolution, we we incorporate the possibility that perhaps some of these branches on our bushy family tree didn't actually go extinct and are still persisting in remote corners of the globe or in remote environments and and uh, and you know how would that fit is there a is there a context that can accommodate the existence i mean anyone today who says oh it's just impossible it couldn't possibly exist doesn't know what they're talking about plain and simple now they might say oh it's so unlikely that something like that could exist today that's a different argument altogether the possibility denial is out the window it's entirely out the window mm-hmm. but then then you're left with the questions you need to, to grapple with the questions well where is the body why haven't we found one you know where where's the fossil record in this continent and so forth and so forth and those things i think even those things can be rationally discussed and the uh, likelihoods weighed even in the absence of conclusive evidence but boy there's a lot of suggestive evidence that that really uh keeps the flame fanned and uh and you know the the inquiry burning yeah so to speak i love i love this topic and you kind of you kind of introduced how we're going to approach this but before we get into the questions i mean i grew up watching bigfoot documentaries i've I'm known of your work for many years uh it's not a topic i get to explore often on this show but i'm trying to do more human interest stuff like this so we're going to get into it but i'd like to learn a little bit about my guests who come on to talk about topics like this how did you 
personally, Dr. Meldrum, become interested in the possibility that this missing link might exist? Was it a, a boyhood fascination that grew scientific, or has it always been a scientific question for you? Um, no, no. It. Uh, I mean, I think that your first characterization was actually kind of spot on. I, I mean, as a, as a youngster, uh, as so many youngsters, I was fascinated by uh, prehistoric creatures, dinosaurs, and Ice Age megafauna, and, and uh, you know the prospect of primitive men eking out a living in in uh, extreme environments and so forth. I was also fascinated by mysteries. I, you know, the the uh, the romance of getting in a plane and flying towards the North Pole and ending up inside a hollow Earth was one that fascinated <laughs> me as a youngster. You know, until I came to understand the physics involved a bit better. And, um, and so that, uh, you know, that spark was there when I saw the Patterson Gimlin film, as, as, uh, as I've said, uh, told the story off. And I, you know, I was a youngster, uh, Roger had just uh, come through Spokane. It was one of the first, if not the first, um, public showings of the, of the film at the Spokane Coliseum there in Washington state. And I was, uh, I was in fifth grade, so about 11 years old, 10 or 11 years old, mm-hmm. and um, uh, it, the, you know, that what what walked across that silver screen just seemed to embody all of these fascinations and interests that I had, and so wow, it was, you know, it was just captivating to me, and uh, as I, as I often did, my brother and I, you know, when we got into a hobby, we really got into a hobby. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, and so I had, you know, started collecting what few books were out then. I mean, one of the first books I ever got as a Christmas present, a book instead of a toy, was Ivan Sanderson's A Bomb mm. Snowman Legend Come to Life. And I devoured that repeatedly. And I mean, that's how I learned world geography, uh, you know, was studying the maps and le- le- reading his descriptions of the habitat and the distribution and so forth. And um, I, you know, I started collecting newspaper clippings and this was back in the day before, before, uh, copy machines were readily available and so forth. There might be a copy machine at your office, but it was, this was still carbon copies, you know, was why, how you made a copy. But, uh, I would sit there at my typewriter and I'd go to the library and check out books and, and, uh, you know, I could only keep the book for so long. So I'd sit there at my typewriter, my mom's typewriter and transcribe sections of these books that talked about the abominable snowman or about Bigfoot. And, uh, or I would uh, tape record. I would actually dictate them. Or, or I would take a tape recorder with us. I'd talk my folks into taking us to uh, one of the drive-in movie theaters when a Bigfoot movie was playing. And I'd record the soundtrack and put that on at night and listen to it, you know, fall asleep, listening to the legend of Boggy Creek. And he always follows the creek. You know? <laughs> that just really was, uh, was uh, imprinted on my brain at that age. And so, you know, th- that interest uh, waxed and waned and kind of became latent as other things took uh, priority. But then um, I guess all that, uh, all those interests that aligned with this topic uh, kind of directed my, my uh, my pursuits of education and, and, and as various opportunities came, things crystallized and came into focus. And before I knew it, I was pursuing a doctorate in uh, anatomical sciences with an emphasis in physical anthropology and looking at hominin bipedalism specifically. And and uh, then, I mean, that just 
that was unwittingly preparing the ground, so to speak, for the spring planting, because then suddenly, mm -hmm. boom, I was brought up face-to-face -face through just kind of serendipitous circumstances with these, this long, long line of tracks in southeastern Washington and, uh, and a visit to Grover's lab and a couple of other things that all kind of converged. And suddenly here, here I was, was presented with this opportunity to pursue this in a way that, uh, you know, uh, really hadn't been, um, uh, available, I guess, mm -hmm. you know, the, yeah. the stars really kind of aligned in, in many ways. I mean, Grover Krantz had done a lot. He had, um, you know, standing on his shoulders really gave me a jump start down the path of uh, many of these thoughts and, and investigations. But uh, but my particular training was even more apt for the interpretation of the analysis of what is by far the most prevalent and prolific body of data, which are the footprint, right. uh, the footprints and footprint casts documenting those. So I think I've really, I've taken that much further. I mean, it, it, I, I find it impressive and interesting that those academics who have most, uh, been most uh, impacted, have been most um, impressed by the possibility of the, of the existence of Sasquatch, like John Napier and Grover Krantz and Ivan Sanderson, have been very focused on or have included in their arguments the, the footprint evidence. Um, I mean, Napier in his book, when he when he tips his hat and acknowledges that he does think that Sasquatch exists, and it's and he 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 uh, you know gives away what he thinks uh, compelled him, what what uh, it was persuasive. It was the footprints. He basically says something is out there leaving these footprints, and yeah. he was convinced that that some of them were the real deal. He thought there was. Uh, a bit of hoaxing going on, and and you know anybody worth their salt can recognize that with, with, from a close examination. But it's not as pervasive as as the uninformed might have you believe. Right. It's uh, so, much more get... common misidentifications than yeah. outright hoaxes. That's where we get into some of what I like to call the Bigfoot logical fallacies. Right. Mm -hmm. So. Okay where this is my theory you can tell me if i'm right or wrong people want to say oh we have more cameras now so why isn't why isn't bigfoot why isn't there conclusive evidence of a bigfoot on camera why does everything look like it's shot on a potato as they say you know or right. why don't we have a carcass why don't we have a body and i don't necessarily think that just because technology is more prevalent means that sasquatch is is going to be that much easier to locate and to find that's right. Yeah, we have more cameras, but we don't have better photographers. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, plus, plus, and, and even giving credit where credit's due, the circumstances that are typically described uh, accompanying uh, and such an encounter uh, are such that it's very unlikely that someone's going to have the composure, the wherewithal, to actually get a good picture. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, even these people who just reflexively whip up their phones and start videotaping or, or recording rather an antiquated term there, but yeah. recording, um, you know, it, uh, if you were going to bump into, uh, an eight foot, eight and a half foot tall, thousand pound bipedal 
primate uh, striding across the road, uh, perhaps at night, or perhaps you know under under not the best of of uh, 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 viewing conditions, you know the just the split second of that experience oftentimes doesn't um, permit someone to quickly get their camera out of their pocket and turn it on. And uh, I mean, not everyone is that adept. I'm kind of still kind of new to a smartphone, and it takes a few buttons. <laughs> I don't, yeah. I don't know all the shortcuts, but anyway, and then, you know, you ask about the bodies and, and, um, one of the things I think, uh, you know, one of the logical, uh, links in that chain of argument is the rarity of these creatures. I've talked about this yep. at some length in public, and I think they're much rarer than most people who, uh, allow for the possible existence, existence of such a creature are willing to acknowledge. I mean, you get people, they're describing a uh, you know a, a, a booming population with little communities of Sasquatch here and there, and such a density would would leave more sign. We'd find them. We'd be bumping into them more often. The fact mm-hmm. that we have so few encounters reported and so few footprints spanning the, the decades. Um, and the repeat appearance of recognizable individual of that footprint record we have, given that there's so few, when footprints are found, there are very few individuals in a given region. Hmm. And that's been, that's been demonstrated quite clearly by, you know, that was one of the first questions I asked. See, that hadn't, some people, I think, had drawn attention to a couple of examples. But, you know, my question was, if these creatures exist, if we allow that they exist, uh, they must be very rare. And uh, with that premise, if footprints are found in a given geographical region uh, mm-hmm. repeatedly over a period of time, sometimes it's decades even, I mean, given their lifespan, um, then the mm-hmm. odds are that you're going to see the footprints of one of those very few individuals more than once. Yeah. And so I started, I started looking for examples of that. Because one of the things I was kind of concerned about is that having grown up and, you know, kind of knew, knowing some of the lore and some of the literature surrounding these these reports and so on, uh, there seemed to be an awful lot of variation in the in the tracks. And that that's just not I mean, you can you can have a certain amount of variation in a in a rare uh, low density population of a species. But but uh, I mean, there's got to be some consistency. And so I started looking for um, the repeat appearance and, and for more of that consistency, and they both emerged. I mean, we, it wasn't hard to find uh, such examples, many that had been overlooked, because people didn't understand how a footprint can vary in appearance mm-hmm. from, from uh, step to step, even in a given location, let alone uh, in very different substrates. Yeah. Uh, separated by space and time, and uh, so that uh, that became evident quickly. And then, with a larger sample and more uh, credible, uh, you know, uh, def- I, more definitive in my mind examples, and a, a model of the foot, a distinctive model that differentiates it from human tracks, uh, began to take shape as well. And, and the foot is quite different. It's not just a, an enlargement of a human foot. It is the foot of a, 
eight and a half foot tall, thousand pound bipedal ape, you know, like we were saying, and and mm-hmm. it's it's adapted accordingly. Yeah, I the reason I reached out to you after hearing you, I don't know what the documentary was. Talk about, you know, you can fake a a wooden sculpt of a foot, but there are muscle ridges, there are muscle movement in the in the stride in those prints that nobody could really fake without any kind of advance advanced equipment. Does that prove conclusively in your mind that Sasquatch exists, the complexity of these prints? Well, sure. That is that is is extremely uh, compelling. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I mean, if, if not conclusive. I mean, I, you know, I, I have to, everything has to kind of be qualified by the fact that we don't have a body. We haven't right. proven the existence. And so, and so it remains tentative. But the probability, the confidence in that probability can be very high based on the evidence and the analysis of the evidence. But but absolutely. I mean, if you have a carved wooden foot, just recently Cliff Berrickman received yep. um, Rant Mullen's carved wooden feet, which is a great historical piece. They are the most um, uh, simplistic, uh, <laughs> you know, kind of amateurish interpretations of a of a foot that you could imagine and and no one with any uh, experience of wildlife sign would ever have uh, mistaken something resulting from those carved blocks uh, as as the legitimate evidence of a upright bipedal hominoid and so um, you know as opposed to that static rigid prosthetic as you point out the foot is composed of of quite a number of individual bones that are jointed and that foot is able to mold itself uh, based on muscle action and based on conformity to a very irregular substrate so supination and pronation and inversion and eversion all these different movements that can occur um and so when you see examples, when you have more than just an isolated footprint, so you have, for, for, like recently someone just uh, shared with me a very impressive footprint that was uh, cast up or uh, photographed rather, presumably, up in uh, the uh, state of Wyoming. And it, uh, it actually bears a striking resemblance to some of the existing footprints. And so uh, from, from, you know, 50 years ago, but whether that similarity is just the common, uh, the common, uh, uh, what's the, I keep falling back to the German Bauplan, uh, body plan or architecture, mm-hmm. uh, the architecture of the Sasquatch foot, or whether it's uh, something else remains to be seen. But when you have just one isolated foot, it's always more challenging, one footprint, that is. If I had a yeah. foot, we'd be done. We'd be having a different conversation, <laughs> but yeah. a footprint. But when you have, and this is part of the thing that's so fascinating about these multiple uh, appearances, these repeat appearances of recognizable individuals, because you have a much greater chance under the varied conditions of these different instances of seeing the responsiveness of the foot to those differing conditions. So you see the movements, the the uh, you know the the closed chain linkages between the parts of the foot, but yet they're very malleable in response to the uh, the substrate, and especially in the Sasquatch foot. You know our foot 
Westerners who who live their lives with their feet pretty much confined to shoe wear, the, that malleability, that uh, that flexibility of the foot is greatly reduced, and so everything's kind of compressed and compacted. Whereas you see someone that has gone barefoot much of their life, and they have a much healthier foot and a more natural splay and spread of the metatarsals and the digits, and uh, a much greater uh, flexibility of the foot. Um, right. While still having a very healthy arch, yeah. that was one of the one of the big surprises of the of the physical anthropologist at the turn of the century that went out the previous century that went out and uh, you know to document these habitually unshod native populations. They thought you know these poor natives who didn't have the benefit of boots would have these these uh, decrepit, diseased feet with fallen arches and all. And they were kind of taken aback, you know, in their Victorian <laughs> elitism that, that uh, in fact, these, these natives had a remarkably healthy feet with high arches and, and uh, you know, very, uh, very nimble uh, blade toes and so forth. And, uh, and it, sure. was the, it was the poor European that was suffering from <laughs> bunions and corns and, and uh, arthritis in the toes and whatnot and, and uh, weak arches. I want to ask, because you talk so scientifically about this, and this is so fascinating. My concern is, as somebody who believes in Sasquatch, who believes that uh, it's, we just haven't found the conclusive proof yet, uh, I want to focus on a kind of a meta-negative here, and that is how science treats this research. And I've never understood in all the documentaries that I've watched about that, that the study of Bigfoot is a crypto science, why mainstream science has not taken seriously the question of is a mis because we know about Gigant Gigantopithecus, we know about all these other links going back to the caveman times. Why has science not taken seriously the the study of whether or not a missing link between human and ape could still be roaming the earth? That seems like a very valid question to me that has almost been soiled by the media perception that this is cryptozoology, that this is right. some folklorish horror character as opposed right. to a legitimate scientific question. Right. No, you're right. And I've, I've wondered that for a long time, too. So, I mean, still, the reactions sometimes surprise me, and I think that they're, some reactions are just entirely unscientific, and so they're not rational. But, mm -hmm. uh, but what I, the conclusion that I have come to is when you consider... Excuse me. When you consider the question of Sasquatch, its history, against the historical backdrop of of prevailing attitudes in science and particularly in anthropology at that time, then it starts to make a little more sense. I mean, we're kind of on the heels of uh, it. It came on the heels rather of the fascination, the public fascination with the prospect of the Yeti. Which there were some scientists who took a, a, a very pointed interest in that, but they kept it very close to their vest. There was kind of a, a uh, you know, a, a secret society of, of <laughs> Yeti enthusiasts amongst some scientific circles, and uh, they they felt it would that there uh, because of kind of the sensation that surrounded, it, not unlike what we experience. Uh, would have would taint their reputations and their credibility, and so they kept it kept aloof from it. 
that sort of that attitude sort of spilled over, I think, as as the interest was redirected now to the question of a North American abominable snowman, you know, and even Roger Patterson's little book, Do Abominable Snowmen of America Really Exist? It was it was uh, cast or or, or um, uh, uh, forced into that same mold, and at that time, uh, in the '60s, the uh, anthropological community was really um, uh, there was a raging debate about the pattern and process of human evolution, and there were there were agendas. There were people who thought that that we were. Um, uh, that we were just part of a very long existing species that has changed through time, but essentially there was no speciation. We were one single lineage, and uh, and then some bolstered that idea with the notion that, borrowed from ecology, the niche concept that no two species can occupy the same niche. Uh, each one will be, you know, uh, each one would, would would compete with the other, and one would drive the other to extinction, or result in uh, um, character displacement or niche partitioning or something that would make it possible for them to uh, to uh, both make a living there. But but that was used to reinforce this notion of the single species hypothesis, which suggested that. The hominin species was so unique that it was an exclusive niche, you know, a, a closed club, only one member. There could be only one. And um, and so when Roger Patterson brings this film that depicts a bipedal hominin of some kind or hominoid that uh, was a non-human species that seem to be very parallel in many adaptations with us, at least in its in its uh, posture and gait and so forth, um, they couldn't even accommodate the existence of such a thing based on right. the on their indoctrination with this paradigm. And so it had to be fake, see? And so it was only much later that the um, that notion of, of a single species hypothesis started to break down. First, there were robust and gracile australopithecines. They weren't male and female of a single species, but they were distinct. And then, um, you know, they kicked the can down the road and said, well, that, you know, the australopithecines, they're barely bipedal chimpanzees. I mean, we can't apply this exclusive club credential to, uh, to them. We have, once the homo emerges... Once mm-hmm. the genus Homo's on the scene, then it's an exclusive club. Well, no sooner had that caveat been been uh, you know canonized than uh, Richard Leakey describes in East Africa living contemporaneous in the same horizon, same sediments, Homo erectus or Homo ergaster now, um, Homo ergaster, Homo habilis, Homo rudolfensis, and Paranthropus boisei at least four species coexisting simultaneously. Well, now the argument gets kicked down even further into <laughs> Homo sapiens proper. And, well, you know, now we're the only ones. I mean, obviously our technology and culture and intelligence won out, and we are the sole survivors of that diverse radiation. 
Well, that's being challenged right and left as we keep finding branches of this bushy tree that have persisted much more recently than ever thought possible. I mean, what really drove this home was the discovery of Homo floresiensis, the hobbit. I mean, yeah. for a while, it was thought to be only between 13 and 18,000. That's been pushed back a little further to about 50,000. But in those in those 50,000 years, uh, you know, give or take, we've got Homo erectus, we've got Homo heidelbergensis, we've got Homo neanderthalensis, we have um, Homo floresiensis. We've got a half a dozen different species of hominin that persisted, uh, that they have to acknowledge, yeah. uh, persisted at least until about 20, 20 to 30,000 years ago, or slightly more. But still, I mean, still just a snap of the fingers in geologic time. And so why... Why, with the, all the evidence to suggest the inertia of these trajectories of these lineages, why would we assume that, in the fa- especially in the face of all the evidence that keeps coming forward, that keeps suggesting there could be something else? See, that's what I mean about the possibility that such things exist is, is, has been addressed. It's very possible. In fact, it's very likely. Now, the question is, how likely? You know, is uh, when when they describe the Hobbit and and they kind of sheepishly acknowledge that the local people had already been telling them stories about little hairy people live up in the mountains. Yeah. So, what is the likelihood? You know, they're even willing to acknowledge that they could have existed into historic times. And those early Dutch settlers in their journals actually talked about encountering these little hairy people. Yeah. Well, so- why why are you you know why draw the line there? Why is the testimony of a Dutch settler any better better than the testimony of a professional photographer who's seen uh, an orang pendek several times? Yeah, you know. So that all begs the question: What has to happen now? I mean, I, I blame the media a little bit for the idea that 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 Bigfoot is just some mythical creature and isn't scientifically viable. Even though folks like you who are legitimate scientists go on media, it's very important. But you. I have an issue with uh, a gentleman whose whose show you mentioned. Uh, you mentioned a gentleman. I think they're great people, but I think the way that show was edited together, you're sitting on the edge of your seat thinking they're going to find it, and obviously they don't. So yeah. what has to happen now, now that we have technology, now that we have things that can penetrate deep into the woods? Do we yeah. have to go? Do we have to helicopter and parachute in to a part of the world, to a part of the country with unexplored woods? How can we get the definitive proof? What has to happen? Well, I, you know, I've been uh, not, not helicoptering in. You're, it's a, you're yeah. able to get to some of those places on on foot or by vehicle, but uh, yeah. into, even into the wilderness areas. And I've been doing that uh, a lot mm-hmm. over the years. Have you <laughs> what, had a sighting? What you, what you, have you I had... have not had a visual sight. I may have caught a glimpse of something, um, <laughs> pardon me, not too long sure. ago, but... Uh, uh, I've, I've found footprints in the field several times I've, that I'm quite confident about. I've heard vocalizations that were very possibly uh, something, uh, a Sasquatch, I mean, but uh, obviously it was something. Mm-hmm. But um, but no, I haven't had that eye-to-eye contact really to to confirm that in, in my own mind. But, but the problem is, I mean, and this is the thing that, uh, you know, I, I emphasized when I suggested that these were very rare. I've been mm-hmm. working with someone in the field, you know, and one time this person is the type of guy that 
he, when he gets organized and you've got the resources and the personnel and um, uh, the wherewithal, you've got the plan, you've done your homework, then you, you get it done. You get this project done. It's the way he is, was professionally in business. And so when he turns his attention to this um, you know, lifelong interest in Sasquatch, he takes that same approach. So I remember one time we were, we were going to be driving up to a region that, that he had uh, asked me to select. So we, we were going to explore some area here in actually here in Idaho and that I'd long wanted to get into some of these oh, wilderness cool. areas. I mean, Idaho boasts more wilderness area than any of the other lower 48. So um, we were going back to a really great place. Uh, the, unfortunately, the fires uh, mm-hmm. that year, Idaho was the where all the fires were happening, it seemed. And But anyway, to make a long story short, he turns to me at one point as we're driving up from after he picked me up here in Pocatello. So, Jeff, what are our chances? <laughs> you know, are we going to get this done mm-hmm. in this five-day uh, exploratory foray into the wilderness? And I said, you know, I mean, I chuckled and I said, you know, we had all the belt all, uh, that were available at that time. I mean, short of maybe a blimp. And we investigated that <laughs> and we just, we just ran into roadblock after roadblock. Oh, but, wow. But we, awesome. um, yeah, it would have been really cool if it had worked out the way we'd hoped. But we, we, uh, we had a couple of engineers who couldn't speak the same language. And so, I mean, figuratively. And so it, it never, it never came together as we hoped. But short of that, we had a lot of bells and whistles. You know, the standard Bigfoot equipment. We had the FLIR and the night vision and the camera traps and the radios and, the, you know, this, that, and the other, the spotting scopes and binoculars, all, all the optics and the body cameras. And, and, uh, and I said, well, even with all that stuff, there's only so much ground we can cover in five days. And basically, we're, we're going to be restricted to one part of one drainage system that we're going to explore and see the possibilities for. Now, if there's a Sasquatch, if there is one Sasquatch, and there's probably not more than one, that happens to be in that drainage during these five days, then we've got a chance of of an encounter. But if it's just over the ridge in the next drainage, (laughs) we're out of luck. We're SOL, you know. And so um, that's kind of what people forget. You know, I I have to say, and I I say this uh, gently, and uh, kindly, but the the weekend warriors who report consistent weekend encounters with a Sasquatch, you know, when you press them on the matter, what are they actually experiencing? Well, you know, there's a bump in the night. There's a there's a sound, or it's not even a sound. It's a feeling that they mm-hmm. get that they're around. You know, in other words, there's absolutely no substantive evidence produced by their, quote, Bigfoot activity that they're experiencing on a weekly basis. I mean, I've spent months, months and months and months at a time even uh, in the field and have not uh, had better luck than finding a few tracks and and a few strands sure. of potential hair and such. And so um, I, I have to wonder, you know, I mean, it's not just jealousy and it's not, it's not <laughs> yeah. narrow mindedness to the possibilities, but, but yeah. yeah, it's curiosity. How is it that you're having all this, you know, this Midas touch when it comes to finding evidence and well, and if, when I yeah. scrutinize it, there's, it's fool's gold, not real gold. <laughs> yeah. Cause if you're not a nature person, you don't know what, 
what a sound. If you're not familiar with actual noises that animals make, and I'm not, I'm not a hunter, I'm not a woods person whatsoever. I'm yeah. sure I'd think there were creepy, creepy crawlies and sasquatches and things that. No, it's just a deer, you know. So right. it's it's that confirmation bias that is heightened when you're freaked out in the middle of the woods. I I totally understand that. But, well, uh, and, the, and the thing that confirms that for me too is that, uh, you know, uh, is is footprints. The example mm-hmm. of footprints, because there, if someone yeah. has claimed to have have seen a footprint and has documented it, they can then show me the pictures or show me the cast, and mm-hmm. I can evaluate it. And my experience has been that a very large number of quote track reports are mm-hmm. not footprints of Sasquatch. Right. And so if if that percentage is so disappointingly low, not non-existent, there is evidence. I mean there's good evidence. But if it's but if there are that many people misinterpreting, misidentifying a physical object or at least I mean a trace of a physical object in the ground, then how reliable is their interpretation of a vocalization or sure. you know or a quote a tree knock or whatever else you know same with hair you know all these reports of bigfoot hair and yet when uh, literally nine out of ten of the hairs that are submitted to me i can readily uh, demonstrate with a you know with a photographic comparison that it's not it's it's a deer or it's a you know coyote or it's a whatever Mm -hmm. and um and so but there are those there's a small sample of hair that is clearly primate and it's distinct, and it can't be attributed to any other common, you know, fur-bearing mammal out there in the woods. And so, um, but there's an awful lot of mistaken uh, uh, attribution of hair to Sasquatch. Yeah. My last question for you isn't about hair or or footprints, and, and it's about film. And it's about the Patterson-Gimlin film. And I'm going to ask this in the way that we've been talking. I'm not going to try to hold you to an absolute but on the probability scale, as somebody who studies anatomy, who's probably watched that over and over again with all the reflexes and the micro expressions and things, where are you on the probability scale that that is an authentic Sasquatch versus a really, really good hoax? 99.99. And I'm not sure what you could do to... to uh, uh, reclaim that or or to uh, validate that one uh, hundredth of one percent mm-hmm. uh, doubt in my mind. I mean, I don't know what you could show me that say, oh, well, yeah, I see that now. You, I see why it's not true. In other words, I'm, I'm as convinced as I can be. I've looked at it from so many dur- uh, um, perspectives and so thoroughly. And from my perspective, as, a, as a, like you said, as an anatomist, as a student of human and primate locomotion, as a as an expert in footprint uh, morphology and and uh, functional morphology and so on, um, uh, that I'm short of having stood there on the sandbar with Roger and Bob. I'm as confident as I can be. So yeah, it's um, it's it's an amazing piece of footage, and and again, uh, it's all the more amazing. Just as the I said, the question of the science's reaction makes mm-hmm. more sense when considered against the backdrop of the history of ideas. Um, it's the same with the Patterson-Gimlin film. 
the film actually anticipates by decades what is now considered common knowledge about early hominin evolution based on our extremely expanded fossil record since this you know from the 70s forward it just took off like a mushroom and continues you know at a at a, mar- a remarkable pace that's only really only slowed or uh, hindered by limits on personnel and funding um they just keep yeah. finding remarkable discoveries and but uh when you look at the patterson gimlin film see again as i said when roger showed that film it was thought that uh, that uh, it couldn't exist because there could not be other non-human bipeds out there, and that has fallen by the wayside. Well, then, even but even then, see, they looked at that and they thought, well, this is just an un- even even if such a thing might exist. This is what uh, John Napier said. John Napier, who was amongst those who viewed the film at the Smithsonian, one of its first U.S. showings into the uh, scientists he was probably the more open-minded of the group and was obviously impressed because five years later he published um, a remarkable book about sasquatch and yeti and uh you know in his in his retirement when he felt free to to speak openly about such a controversial topic and still people thought he he was loony that he'd gone off the deep end you know and had uh, become old and senile and wrote this crazy book but it's really a remarkable book. But when he talked about the the Patterson Gimlin film, he he came down on the still remained on the negative side as as his other cohorts did on the committee that watched it. Um, but he said, I really can't put my finger on why I can't accept it, except to point out that when you look at at this creature walk across the sandbar from the waist up, she looks like an ape, but from the waist down, she looks like a human. He said it's almost inconceivable that such a weird combination of traits would exist in nature. So it has to be a hoax. Well, isn't it interesting that just a few short years later, uh, Don Johansson announces the discovery of Lucy, Australopithecus afarensis, and to yep. much fanfare and, and pomp and circumstance. And it was it was a, a fascinating discovery that provided a much better insight into the pelvis and the lower extremity of these early hominins with their uh, inwardly directed knees, their valgus knee and and a broad uh, bowl-shaped pelvis and and etc and feet with uh, less divergent if not non-divergent big toes. And so what did the press how did the press characterize this uh, or in the in the words the you know the informal description from the scientists from the waist up she looks like a chimpanzee from the waist down she looks like a human well wait a minute <laughs> yeah that was the very description of, of patty that uh, disqualified her as a legitimate entity and yet here in lucy now it's like isn't it interesting how hominin evolution has proceeded in this unexpected combination of traits that's interesting because <laughs> that that's so cool because it's almost like Patty and the film are the scientific hypothesis, and throughout exactly. the years, it's being proven true. This stuff exactly. is just so interesting. Dr. Jeff Meldrum, this was a pleasure. Please come back. This stuff is so fascinating to me. I really, really appreciate your time, and there's so oh, much more. And I know, I know in our lifetime, I think we're going to have the answers. I really do. It sounds like we're getting close. 
Well, I hope so, because my lifetime is uh, is uh, shrinking away. <laughs> oh, stop it. <laughs> <laughs> Professor Meldrum, thank you so very much. There's a lot more to discuss. This topic is endlessly fascinating to me, and I hope to have you back very, very soon. Next up, we have an extra-long episode with ufologist Richard Dolan. If you're listening to this on January 12th, that's tomorrow. If you're listening any time after, just keep clicking through to listen for more. That's it for us today. Remember, you can always check out talkfor2.com for the latest episodes. Also, subscribe to us in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Talk for Two and Instagram at Talk for Two Pod and TikTok. I always forget to promote this at Talk for Two. Reach out to me directly at talkfor2cast at gmail.com. That's T A L K F O R T W O C A S T at gmail.com. Signing off, I'm Matt Bailey, reminding everyone out there to keep talking for two. You can hear more show business interviews with the stars at talkfor2.com. <laughs>